Hello, Husky fans, and welcome to another edition of the UConn Pod. This is Amon Kidwai. I'm joined by Daniel Connolly and Dan Madigan, uh, a.k.a. the editor's Dan, and uh, special guest Patrick Martin also joining us to talk UConn men's hoops. First off, though, we got to talk about UConn men's hockey, the ice bus, went into the Hockey East playoffs with solid bit of momentum coming off of a big win over Providence, only to fall short. We know the Huskies had not won a playoff game in the Mike Cavanaugh era to date, were unable to remove that monkey from their back. Connolly, how, how are we feeling now about the ice bus after this, this 6-1 loss in the single elimination Hockey East playoffs? It's hard to just make sense of it because they had played so well all season long. They really hadn't laid too many eggs, at least not comparable to a normal season. They had just beaten Providence pretty easily. And then they come out in the playoffs and just look horrible. They looked nervous. They played nervous. They couldn't really generate much offense at all. They were on their back heel pretty much the entire game. There was a little glimmer of hope for a little bit when they got within 3-1 that maybe they could make a comeback and then they subsequently gave up three unanswered goals after that to lose 6-1. So definitely feels like an appropriate scoreline, 6-1. I don't really think it was much closer than that. It's just a tough way to go out, especially because it is single elimination. UConn could have used that as motivation to come back and win two games in a normal season, but that just knocks them out immediately. And Mike Cavanaugh is now 0 of 11 in the playoffs in his UConn career, counting both the Atlantic hockey and the hockey East playoffs. So it's tough because it was such a promising season. UConn obviously had so many firsts were ranked for the first time in program history, finished in fourth, their highest ever finish, just a very strong team. And one that assuming this is the end for it, it's legacy is probably going to be marred by the fact that it went out so poorly in the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, the, the playoff thing is a tough one. Um, we discussed this on the UConn Hockey Hub podcast, but, you know, the previous UConn hockey teams that were in the playoffs were already just, you know, performing out of their shoes, overachieving. They were in a tough spot, in, a, in tough matchups in, in most cases. Um, this year did feel different. I think, you know, we, we had a, a, a cautious, informed optimism that, that this team was really solid and um, might be able to get something done. And to your point, in a normal year, maybe they could have at least gotten one win out of it, uh, you know, responded with a win, even if they end up losing the series. But, um, you know, I think, I think still lots of signs of progress for the program. Amazing to finish fourth in Hockey East. And um, we believe their season is over, but there is some hope for a, a postseason bid still. Yeah, they're not dead yet. I don't really personally think they have much of a chance at getting into the NCAA tournament. They're still alive. There's still a possibility of it. It's not a 50-50 chance, I would guess, as someone described it to me. But as long as Providence loses in the semifinals to UMass today on Wednesday at 7, UConn's at least still alive because that would make it the fourth best team in hockey still, even with the result in the playoffs. And it's because the selection committee, because there is a selection committee this year for hockey instead of the tournament just being picked off pairwise, UConn is a fourth place team in Hockey East in the best conference in the country, the conference that consistently gets the most teams in the NCAA tournament. And there's probably like 
two spots that haven't been decided. So it's really going to come down to at least if, as long as Providence loses, UConn will be in the mix along with a couple teams out West, I would say, and maybe a big 12, big 10 team. So I don't think, I mean, their chances of getting in are still alive. They're not completely dead yet. I don't think it's a 50, 50 chance. That feels really high to me. I'd say if I had to guess if Providence loses, I'd give them a 25% chance to just get in. So it's possible, but just with the way they ended the season, I think the committee's going to look at that. And apparently the committee's not looking at any overtime games. Anything that went to overtime is basically just going to be treated as a tie. So you mm-hmm. as a nine, seven and six record, if that's the case, which isn't bad. I still just have a hard time seeing it. They don't have many signature wins. They didn't finish the year very strong. They went one and done in the playoffs. So yeah, it's possible. I'll be watching the selection show because it's a possibility, but I wouldn't put any money on it happening. So you're saying there's a chance. Um, You know who did make the NCAA tournament though? UConn men's basketball team. That's right, folks. After five years, the Huskies are back in March Madness, the big dance, and they have a team that we're really excited about. The Big East tournament did not end on the most positive note. I think, you know, we all felt that they had the chance, the, the, the opportunity to make a run in the Big East tournament, um, at least to the final, which, which ended up being a surprise out of nowhere victory for, for Georgetown. Um, but bowing out to Creighton in the semis uh, and, and waiting for their selection Sunday fate, the Huskies ended up getting a seven seed. Uh, so we're happy they avoided the eight, nine and, and future matchup with a one seed. They will be playing number 10, Maryland, out of the Big Ten. That's a Saturday game tipping off at 7.10 p.m. How do we feel about the way the Huskies ended the season and uh, where they're at heading into the tournament? Yeah, I think that Creighton game was definitely, you know, a a frustrating performance from UConn, especially after that strong start, right? Like Adama Sanogo came out so hot. He was such a force down low and and even though James Booknight didn't really have his best game, they were able to really kind of stay in it and kind of piece it together. Um, and then RJ Cole got hurt at the end there and, and busted that that spot, you know, right above his eyebrow and, and actually had a minor concussion and just recently got cleared. Um, and I really think that changed the, the final possession, the final three minutes. And I'm not saying that if Cole was on the court, UConn definitely would have won. But I think that turns into a game where it doesn't come down to that last possession where even though UConn got a ton of good looks, honestly, like two or three really surprising good looks, there's a lot of pressure. You can't expect those shots to go in. Um, and especially when it works out where I think it was Book Knight that took one and Polly took two shots. So you really can't ask for three better looks than that. But given the moment, the magnitude, everything that comes along with it, uh, it's certainly not a makeable, you know, an easy shot to make overall. I I think they're heading in the right direction. I think it would have been better to be obviously a higher seed than, you know, than a seven, just having to go against potentially a two seed in Alabama. If the Huskies are able to get by the Terrapins Um, or a really, really hot Iona team in some crazy world um, where they have, you know, a terrible person, but an objectively really good basketball coach and Rick Pitino. So um, a lot of scary matchups, a lot of landmines throughout that East region. But overall, if James Booknight is healthy, if RJ Cole is healthy, 
and Adama Sinogo plays like he did in the UConn, in the Big East tournament where he was named to the all-tournament team and he's fresh off being named to the all-freshman team, this UConn team is super dangerous. And I think that's really all you can ask for um, heading into the NCAA tournament for the first time since 2016. So before, uh, Connelly, I'll let you you kind of weigh in on your thoughts on the Big East tournament, but I do have a little bit of trivia, NCAA, UConn NCAA tournament trivia for everyone before we get into it. Yeah, well, first, I just want to publicly apologize to all UConn fans out there for uh, the part I played in UConn's NCAA tournament drought. So I graduated from high school in 2016, the last year UConn went to the NCAA tournament. I graduated from college last May from UConn last May, and now UConn is back in the Big East or the NCAA tournament the year after I've graduated. So I don't know what it was with my presence on campus or what specifically I did, but I just want to apologize to everyone for the role that I played and for keeping UConn out of the NCAA tournament this long. If I do end up going to grad school, I promise I'll make my best effort to end up at Syracuse or another rival school, just so I could hopefully bring that same curse to them. But I'm just glad that I've, my apparent curse has been lifted from UConn and hopefully we'll just help UConn continue to grow. But yeah, I think it was just a disappointing way for the Big East tournament to end. I mean, with the way it shook out, I don't know if UConn even ends up winning the Big East tournament with the way that Georgetown was playing, but it's just frustrating that I said last episode that UConn seems to finally have it behind them where every single thing that can go wrong will go wrong. That proved to be very untrue in the Big East tournament with James Booknight's cramps and then RJ Cole busting his head open. If RJ Cole plays at the end of that game, I feel like it goes very differently. I feel like UConn doesn't go six minutes at the end of the game without a field goal if RJ Cole is able to play all of that. So it's it's just one of those things where it's frustrating and hopefully it's the type of thing that UConn can learn from. And they've been in a lot of close games this season. And really the past couple seasons under Dan Hurley, where it feels like they get so close and they just can't quite finish the job. So you hope that one day they're finally just going to get that to turn around and it'll be UConn ends up winning those close games. But I'm excited for the NCAA tournament just because I feel like UConn, for all things considered, got a pretty good region. You're not in a bracket where I feel like there's not an unbeatable one, but like a Gonzaga or a Illinois, I don't feel like Alabama is that dangerous of a two. I feel like they're a beatable two at the very least. Nobody else in the bracket really scares me too much. So I think a lot of what will matter is just how UConn plays more as to just who they play. Because I feel like when they're playing well and things are going well and everyone's on their game, they're really tough to beat. But a lot of what ails them is just things that they do to themselves, foul trouble, bad shot selection, things of that nature where if everything's clicking, James Booknight can't be stopped. Adama Sanogo, teams have no answers for him in the post when he's staying out of foul trouble. RJ Cole can hit some ridiculous shots and can really run the offense well. So if they could just play consistently, not go through these big scoring droughts and stay healthy and out of foul trouble, I don't really think there's many teams in the tournament that can stop UConn. But in the same thread, I don't really feel super confident that UConn is always going to be at that level. I'm not saying anything until I hear Madigan's trivia. All right. So like, like Connolly said, because of the Dan Connolly curse, UConn last played in the NCAA tournament 
in the second round of the 2016 tournament against Kansas, they lost 73 to 61. My question is, can you name the starting five for that UConn team? Because it is a lineup. Let me tell you, it is. I had to do a triple take when um, my buddy told me about it this morning. Sterling Gibbs. Yep. That's one. Sean, Sean Miller. Yep. Rodney Purvis. Yep. Phil Nolan. Wait, no, Phil Nolan was gone by then. Um, you sure about that, Patrick? Yes, I am sure. Well, he was the guy. He was a, <laughs> it was Phil Nolan. Uh, what? <laughs> That's Damn, what I said, Dan too. Uh, I think... Daniel oh, Hamilton, yeah. right? Yep. Daniel Hamilton. So, so that was the five. So it was Sterling Gibbs with 20 points, Rodney Purvis with 17, Daniel Hamilton with 11, uh, and then Sean Miller had two points, and Phil Nolan had zero. And pretty honestly, a pretty interesting bench, too, if, if you think about it. Ken Facey came off the bench. He only played nine minutes, didn't score. Uh, Amita Brima played four minutes or played 18 minutes, had four points. Stephen Enoch, uh, Jalen Adams, and Omar Calhoun came off the bench. So uh, pretty interesting because, you know, that team was very transfer heavy and, and more transfer heavy than I even remember just because of what, what Purvis and Gibbs and Miller especially did for that team. Um, but there was still a core of a pretty decent team in, in Dan Hurley's first year with, with Jalen and, and Kenton Facey. So, um, pretty, pretty interesting. I was, uh, I was stuck on Phil Nolan for a long time. I thought he was long gone by 2016. All the years are melding together, unfortunately. Was, Good job, Patrick. I was not going to get Phil Nolan. That yeah, was impressive. I could have sworn he was, um, he was part, he was a senior with Shabazz, but yeah, no, that, wow. You know, it, it all kind of jumbles together. Those, those dark Connolly years. <laughs> Hey, that was before me. Uh, yeah, that's true. But um, no, I guess, you know, piggybacking off of what you guys said, you, know, you look at UConn's seven losses this year, three were Creighton, and you just kind of have to chalk it up to the fact that that's a really tough matchup for that team. I mean, Creighton trots out, you know, two seven-footers off their bench. They have two guys in Denzel Mahoney and Damian Jefferson who don't really, UConn doesn't really have a guy that can check them. You know, they're too small for Isaiah Whaley and they're too big for book Knight or Tyrese Martin. Um, so, and then Marcus Zigorowski is, you know, the big East is all big East for a reason. So you just, I, you know, even with the RJ Cole being knocked out and Tyler Polly's, you know, Clang three, which I think is UConn fans were also kind of spoiled by buzzer beaters and Kemba moments and Shabazz moments that I, I think we all just assumed that that was going to go in with the way our history has been in the past 20, 25 years. Um, it, you know, it, it happens. That's the rub of the green. But I draw a lot of parallels to the way, you know, that 2014 UConn team just could not beat Louisville. It was just a terrible matchup. They got absolutely bulldozed. Uh, it was either the regular season final or the sometime in the AAC tournament. Uh, they just could not match up against Louisville, and that kind of damper dampened their outlook for the tournament because people saw this blowout and said, "Hmm, not really sure what we, th- we think of UConn." Um, so, leading into Maryland, I think there is some reason to be excited and optimistic. Like Connolly said, when they're on and they're not shooting themselves in the foot uh, with, you know, freshman mistakes, you know, 
Andre Jackson and Adama Sonogo both committing a lot of silly falls that stall momentum. Um, they can be anybody. And I do like, you know, of all the one seeds, you want to be in the region where that number one seeds best player is questionable for the tournament. Like Isaiah livers is for Michigan. Um, Alabama plays a style that can be beaten. Um, you, you would almost want to play a team that has a distinct like style because then, you know, you, you know, there's a blueprint to beat them. Uh, but Maryland's going to be really tough because the more I dug into their research, they seemed like a very, very good team. That was the product of just a superstar conference. Uh, they have, you know, six, five guys up and down the lineup, uh, two really good junior guards who have tournament experience back, uh, the last tournament in 1819. Um, and Turgeon's been there before he has the experience, although he did lose his last two tournament games. Uh, it, it will be a tough out. They play really good defense. And I think as we've all seen this year, UConn has struggled to put the ball in the in the hoop at times, even with book night. Um, so I think that will be a, a concern as we watch that game. And this could be a very ugly basketball game that they might just have to eke out. Yeah. I mean, something to consider with book night, just, you know, with respect to the Creighton game, you know, we talk about if Cole is healthy, that game's different. If book night's fully healthy, obviously that game's full, that game's different. Um, you know, he was playing a game 9 p.m. the night before uh, and, and left it because of cramps. So um, that, that's also an intense environment. And then to just add to the what ifs on that game, um, even just if Adama Sonogo gets a few more minutes in that game, it could be a difference of, of two to four points. Um, you know, I am not a fan of sitting someone with, with two fouls, like by default. And I'm always of the opinion like let the person foul out. What do you know? Who cares if they get to five, you don't get hurt if they get to five, but if you, if you sit them for lots of minutes and they're down with four, it, you know, it's you're, you're, you're sitting them for longer than you need to. Um, but, but anyway, I, I totally agree that just, you know, we know that this UConn team can beat anyone. Um, I honestly feel really great about the matchup with Maryland uh, because of that reason. I, I think UConn, has an argument to be ranked higher than its seed. Something that we discussed in the last podcast, just, you know, if, if you consider the, the stretch of where they were without book night and how they played for the stretch with them, it's obviously uh, a different team. And then now the fact that RJ Cole is playing at a high level, really, you know, really consistently. Uh, and according to Adam Zagoria's sources will be healthy and available to play on Saturday. I honestly feel pretty good about this Maryland matchup. Um, hoping to avenge the the 2002 loss suffered by Karan Butler's team at the hands of eventual national champion Maryland. Um, but I'll also just add this: uh, Maryland fans hate hate Turgeon. Um, I I know I live in D.C. I've been down here for a while. I actually live with a Maryland grad. They they do not like him at all. They think he does not come up in big moments. They think his style is not conducive to winning games. They um, don't think he does a good enough job recruiting. And also this is not supposed to be a very big season for them. Um, they had a really good year last year, uh, which was unfortunately cut short because of um, COVID-19. Um, and, and they, 
you know, this was this was very much a, a retooling, not rebuilding necessarily, but certainly a retooling year for them. Um, so I really like UConn's chances against Maryland. And I think they've, as we've discussed, have a good, good lie in this region with Michigan and Alabama as the one and two. There are lots of shades of, of 2014 here. Um, even though I, you know, I will say I, I have more confidence in this team than I did at this time of that 2014 team, except for the fact that obviously Shabazz was just such a God. Uh, we, and we knew that then, but, uh, and I don't think we feel exactly the same way about book Knight, even though he's clearly very, very, very talented. Um, but, but, you know, definitely this is a more solid, stable, good, talented team than the 2016, uh, UConn tournament team. So, um, we've got good chances to make the sweet 16 here and, and I'm optimistic about it. Yeah. I think I don't feel like I did in 2014, just because as good as book night is and book night will be the better NBA player than, than Shabazz. But there was just a level of consistency with Shabazz that we just haven't seen with book night as of late. And, and it's probably because he was hurt or is hurt or, you know, is hurt in some capacity and we can't blame him for that. But until we see it, uh, it's it's hard to really feel super confident about it. But I think this team top to bottom is probably, you know, just as good or stronger than the 2014 team um, and definitely better than, than the 2016 team. So the only thing that concerns me about this matchup with Maryland is the size of the guards, like Patrick talked about. RJ Cole is small. Jalen Gaffney is small. And UConn's good enough defensively where I think they can hide it and, and kind of, you know, make sure that Maryland doesn't take advantage of it. But it's something where I think the Terps could get a few easy buckets throughout the game on that. And in March, that could be the difference. So definitely something to keep an eye on. I have faith, you know, Cole's a really good defender and, and Gaffney has really emerged as a strong player too. So I don't think it's going to be something where it's going to be a, a matchup nightmare and it's going to be, you know, that's all we're going to talk about come Saturday morning or, or next weekend. But it's definitely something to keep an eye on. That being said, they're pretty, they're pretty much all between 6'5 and 6'9, 6'8. And I think this is something that actually benefits UConn, at least in the front court, because Sunogo's around that size and Carlton is a little bit bigger than that. And I think it deepens the bench a little bit and gives them more options. They can play a little faster and, and use Sunogo as the five and Whaley at the four, but they can also slow things down and, and run Sonogo and Carlton together for small stretches, give Sonogo a breather if there's foul trouble. Carlton isn't the same player that Sonogo is, but he can certainly have really good stretches and, and be an important player on this team like he was in the USC game. So I think that is actually something that benefits UConn in the front court, but I always get nervous. UConn always has small guards, and it seems like they always struggle against teams with these bigger guards. So Definitely something that I'm keeping an eye on. I think they'll be able to handle it. Having Tyrese Martin helps, but uh, definitely something I'm a little nervous about heading into Friday night. Yeah, with uh, with that said, with the, the, the bigger guards, I, I noticed uh, when, you know, um, Gillespie, Colin Gillespie for Villanova and Zygorowski for Creighton, they both would, you know, basically invert their offense and have those two guards put them in the post because of that size advantage. And those were players that had a low center of gravity and could back them in. If, and Hurley sent help immediately 
And one of the calling cards of UConn's defense has been their help defense and the way they've been scrambling and covering uh, this year compared to the Kevin Ali years. Um, so I like UConn's chances of if Ayala and, and Wiggins start to back them down or start to get into the lane, UConn has, I think, a, a lot better help defense to, to cover and, and help that size advantage. And then, you know, re- regarding the front court, everything you said is absolutely true. And also, you know, Maryland's defense is very good. It's, it's the best in the Big Ten, which is saying something given, you know, the offenses of Illinois and Iowa. Um, that's going to create a lot of missed baskets. And this could be a game where UConn looks technically awful from an offensive execution end, but you have Tyrese Martin, three or four offensive rebounds. Sonogo getting three or four offensive rebounds. Carlton will find his way into a couple. And if you just make those simple layups, all of that bad offense is going to be mitigated. And I really see a situation where Booknight, Cole are throwing up these prayers that clang off the rim. We get second chance points. And with the defense all scrambled, they, they just they get it up quickly. Um, ironically, I think that might be their best source of offense. Uh, for Saturday. Yeah, I think I, I, I think that's definitely something that we could see. Maryland's pretty good, but not great on defense against offensive rebounds. They're 58th in the country. On offense, they do a terrible job of rebounding their own shots. They're, they're basically dead last for all intents and purposes. Um, so it should be definitely something to keep an eye on. Uh, I am also a little worried about Daryl Morcell guarding book night. He seems to be a, a legit stopper. And he has the size to kind of match, but it's going to be hard to guard James Booknight for 40 minutes. I, I don't care who Daryl Morsell is. Um, he, there's going to be times where he's going to need a break or there's foul trouble or anything like that. But I did want to circle back to, to Cole um, and just shout out Isaiah Whaley because he has just been an unbelievable defensive player really for most of his time here, but especially this year. And I think, his presence allows Hurley to get away with playing Cole uh, or Gaffney or both of them for a lot longer than, you know, he might be able to next year if Whaley doesn't come back Um, because Whaley can do so many things. He can guard multiple positions. He can come weak side. He's an elite shot blocker. And I, I think Cole did a good job defensively overall on Zagorowski, uh, especially in those first two games against Creighton. And it just happened to be where Zagorowski's, you know, one of the best point guards in the country. He's eventually going to, score uh because that's what he does but i think if whaley and cole can stay on the court together that's going to solve some problems and allow things to work for uconn offensively and kind of stay above water defensively i think whaley is just going to be a really big part of this game yeah i think the depth of this uconn team is kind of exactly why we feel a lot better than about them than we do uh previous Husky squads. Um, and, and that's why I really think they have an advantage here over Maryland. I'm talking myself right now into basically being disappointed if they lose to Maryland, but um, you know, the, the, I think this matchup is uh, it plays really well for them. Maryland seems like a, honestly kind of similar, but just a less talented, a little bit behind uh, a version of this UConn team. And if we're talking about a game, that's going to be a defensive battle. I think that really plays into UConn's hands because unlike any of the previous years, UConn has enough firepower, um, I think. Basically, they were kind of robbed of their firepower down the stretch in that Creighton game. Otherwise, it could have looked a lot different, but 
hopefully with, with book night more rested, uh, Cole healthy, if Sonogo can stay out of foul trouble, if Tyler Polly or Tyrese Martin can be a little bit more of a contributor, you know, there, there's enough guys that can, that can score. So if, if it's a defensive battle, um, I think that, which, which is by, by all accounts appears it will be, I think that plays exactly into, into what UConn wants. What we really don't want is for them to get hot shooting three or something, obviously, because we have bad perimeter defense. But again, I'm confident in this UConn team's really high level of defense that they've played. Um, so here I am talking myself into for sure they should beat Maryland, basically. Yeah, I, I, I wish I have your optimism. And, and maybe that's just me being – that's five years of me being Connellied. Um, but there, there are two storylines here I think that will be fun to watch. One, how many first-round matchups have two defensive player of the years playing against each other? Uh, from their conference. I, I haven't looked, I probably should, but that is, that should tell you right away what kind of game it's going to be. Um, and two, I checked um, Evan, Evan, Maya, Evan Mia, Evan Maya, the analytics site. Uh, he ranked Isaiah Whaley ahead of James Booknight as the most integral player to UConn. And he had Whaley, I think in the top 25, top 30 in, among all the players in the tournament. So that just shows you how valuable he is back there in Madigan. You're absolutely right. You know, Cole and Gaffney can up the ball pressure and get up and into these bigger guards, knowing that if they do get beat on the first two dribbles, you know, you've got the rim protectors there in Whaley and Sunogo. And the last thing I'll say about Maryland is uh, I did a little Twitter sleuthing here on, on some of the Maryland profiles. This Daryl Morsell guy, he reminds me a lot of Patrick Beverly. He is apparently chin wagging the entire time, trash talking, uh, you know, clapping everybody's face. Uh, he got into it on in Twitter with Hunter Dickinson, and even after the game was was talking to him after Michigan beat them. Like that's rule number one: is you lose, you, you log off Twitter. Um, and I just kind of poked around little parts of. Um, little parts of, of the Twitter verse. I see a lot of chin wagon from this team and, and it goes to fuel a national narrative. I've seen about Maryland is these guys think that they're the underdogs. They have a bunch of kids from Baltimore and Philly tough, you know, tough nosed kids. Uh, I wonder how UConn will respond to that because, you know, they, for usually they're the ones that are dictating the toughness mentality and in their, in their, in the intensity thanks to Dan Hurley. Uh, I wonder what it's going to look like when that's matched. I think that'll be a really fun narrative to watch is, you know, if Morcell's jawing at book night, who is notoriously kind of, you know, expressionless, will that get a reaction? You know, it's, it's just going to make for a, a lot more of an exciting game. I think. Yeah. We saw after the, after that Michigan game, Turgeon and Michigan's head coach, Juwan Howard kind of got into it. And uh, did you guys see that? And afterwards, yeah. Uh, afterwards, Turgeon was like, "Yeah, I said don't step to me or something like that." And even Jawan Howard was like, "Yeah, I saw a man coming to me, and so I can't. I ran at him." You know, it was like, "Damn!" Uh, I did not know Mark and, Turgeon had that in him. 
Well, Turgeon apparently got into it with Hurley back in 2016, oh, right. I think. Right. Um, the, the, because Turgeon apparently ran up the score and called a timeout to put walk-ons in, and Hurley did not like that, or there was some other thing going on. Uh, you read all the Maryland message sports, they don't like Dan Hurley because apparently he was very fiery afterwards. I'll, I'll let everyone else go check that out for themselves. But, yeah, I think Turgeon kind of has – that kind of curmudgeon uh, reputation around the league uh, and, and, and good for Juwan Howard and his grandma. If you read the post conference, which was great, just that's not how my grandma raised me. If someone steps to you, you step to them. Um, great. You know, it makes for a more exciting you know, narrative. And if you don't think Dan Hurley, like doesn't remember that, and you know, like, like McGruber has not been writing the date that that happened in a notebook 100 times every night before he goes to bed. Um, especially this past week. Uh, you just don't know Dan Hurley. He absolutely remembers that. Yeah, I'm sure him and Mark uh, Mark Turgeon will be nothing but courteous to each other post-game. Maybe we'll get a reenactment of that epic uh, UConn-Tulsa game from his first year where they had that awkward fight and then they both got teed up and they did the weird fist bump thing after. That was a good, good time. But it should be, you know, it, it's... Regardless of how it ends up shaking out, it seems like it's going to be a pretty close game. The line opened with UConn as two and a half point favorites. It's Wednesday night. We're recording this now. Uh, it's up to UConn minus three. And Ken, ba- Ken Palm has UConn winning 66 to 64. So uh, it's essentially a coin flip, but it should be a close game. Should be an exciting one. And it just feels good to look forward to Saturday night and just be like, UConn is in the tournament. They're playing a game that matters. There's a real chance that they can win. Amon, you know, some of us feel very confident that they should win. And, you know, it's cool to to think about not only that first round game, but having a real shot at the second weekend and beyond. And I think that is really the baseline for a lot of UConn fans, for better or for worse. And that's a testament to what Dan Hurley has started to do with this program for the you know, in his first three years, hopefully it's only going to get better. And this is a small step, but uh, it feels good to not only have the NCAA tournament back, but have UConn in it and just think about, I don't know, for me sitting on the couch all day for two, you know, two straight days and just watching basketball till my eyes bleed. So looking forward to it. I mean, regarding the, uh, you know, kind of the nitty gritty of Maryland, I, you know, took a dive into their schedule. They started off the big 10, one in five, and then uh, Turgeon, you know, I, I have heard that similar hatred amongst Maryland fans uh, that they just don't like him. But he made an adjustment apparently around, I'd say, like mid-January and switched up and had Ayala and Wiggins playing off the ball more. And they have this Hakeem Hart guy, you know, basically bringing it up and initiating the offense. And since then, they've, Maryland has essentially, by the metrics, been a top 25 team. Uh, so when you take off those five losses, you know, th- th- it's, I think both of these teams are underseated. This could be more of a, yeah, I don't know. I think this could be a second round or sweet 16 matchup potentially in, in another universe. Um, you know, and, and again, big 10 has this year been shades of those classic big East Game, uh, the Big East Conference in 2009, where you're sending nine teams in. Uh, and they've got wins against Illinois, Michigan State, um, 
and at the same time, you know, really questionable losses versus Penn State. I think they lost to Northwestern as well. So really, it's you, you don't really know what you're going to get from Maryland. And at the same time, you don't you don't know what you're going to get from UConn. Uh, you know, Book Knight could be fully healthy and ready to go and scorching the nets, or they could be the same team that just looks like they set basketball back 20 years against that the first time in Providence. You know, and it's I think that's also what has everyone excited is nobody really knows what's going to happen with this UConn team. They could easily look awful and bow out, or they could beat Maryland by double digits and have people licking their lips ready for Alabama. Uh, and I think that's what people have so excited. They love that kind of variance. Like, what's going to happen? Just roll the dice and see. Yeah, and if you look at those analytic sites, I mean, some of them have, you know, UConn be- around like 20% to make the Sweet 16, which is, you know, really good. Um, so I think some might even be a little higher, but... I followed a ton of, I've just recently followed like a ton of every one of those little metrics people. And it feels like a different one crops up every, every week. And they all have UConn as like the efficiency darling, you know, top 25 offense, top 25 defense. I think you know, Ken Palm is actually that every, I mean, for, for once, for what feels like a long time, UConn is kind of the analytics darling. Uh, they really like the numbers behind this team. And I think that's because they showed such a difference between with book night being out, just kind of a mediocre middle of the pack, big East team. And then an elite big East team when book night is back. So yeah, I mean, all of the, the analytics point towards this UConn team being, you know, punching above it's, it's weight class, but we've seen, this team go through really, you know, questionable stretches uh, during games. And you know that, you know, the bad is, the bad is always right around the corner. Yeah. I was just scrolling through Ken Palm and UConn's the only team in the Ken Palm top 20 that's outside of the top 300 in luck. And I mean, you can take that with a grain of salt, but I think that kind of checks out. I wonder how much book Knight's injury throws that all for a loop. But I think that kind of had something to do with the inconsistency, like you said, Patrick. But I also think every once in a while, there's been a few bad breaks that have gone UConn's way. Um, that doesn't mean it's going to swing all the way back in UConn's favor come tournament time, but uh, it should be more normal. This UConn team is good. We, we know that they're good, uh, and things might start falling their way a little bit more often uh, as we get into the rest of March. So we'll see, but I just saw that. I thought that was kind of weird. There's really no other team. There's like one team that's 250 and the rest are all within the top 100 or so. So a lot of weird forces that are going up against UConn or were anyways. Yeah. So maybe we got some luck coming our way, but yeah, again, seemed like the projections bode well for UConn. I'll make two, two more quick points here. One is just you know, I think that would have been such an electric matchup if it was UConn versus Georgetown in that Big East tournament final. Uh, UConn's first year back, breakthrough for Patrick Ewing um, and, and breakthrough for Dan Hurley too, obviously. Um, and, and the game would have had on the line the record, the all-time record for Big East tournament championships, which uh, unfortunately Georgetown took running away as they crushed Creighton. Uh, would have liked to think UConn might have given them a, a better game, but... Uh, of course, you got to win the previous one to get there. Um, 
The last thing I'll say is just a point about, you know, giving, giving out some credit to the people who made this possible. Um, I think with a lot of uh, teams, let's just take like a UNC, for example, if UNC um, has a couple of down years and then they get back good again, you know, you can still really credit the institution and everything it provides. Uh, that includes being a member of the ACC conference uh, and everything that comes with that. So I just think, you know, got to give a lot of credit for where UConn is right now to David Benedict making the Big East move happen uh, for, to Dan Hurley for, for coming in and joining when it was in the American without a guarantee that it would be in the Big East and for the job they've done, recruiting, staffing this team, rebuilding the excitement around the program. I said it in the last podcast, but there was no guarantee that this would happen. And institutionally, it was a completely different situation. So I think, you know, and I might write this out in more fully thought out in an article, but you know, you really need to give the people who did this, including the players, uh, you know, just so much credit for this because UConn as an institution, not just as a basketball program, UConn as an athletic institution was floundering. And uh, in terms of the men's basketball team, David Benedict, Dan Hurley, uh, James Booknight, Isaiah Whaley, Tyler Polly, you know, these are all people who contributed so much on a very um, individual level when there's a little bit less to believe in and what's going on. Again, compared to like a UNC, right? It's like, that's a situation where you can win. UConn was a situation that was question mark. Uh, and, and they brought it into something relevant and have it going in a really great direction. So I think that's just something to, to really point out. UConn's in a very unique situation as a school, as an athletic department, and uh, the people in charge have done well. And so we are um, uh, very often ready to criticize them, but also in this case, I think give them lots and lots of credit for where they are right now. Question. How many American Athletic Conference basketball games have you guys watched this year? Zero. Zero point zero, I think I would say. All right. Thank you to our sponsors for that wonderful ad content. Moving on, the UConn women's basketball team is also looking forward to the NCAA tournament, but they're going to be a little shorthanded on the leadership front. Uh, Gino Ariema. Uh, it was announced on Sunday, has tested positive for COVID-19. Um, and Shay Ralph uh, on Wednesday left the bubble uh, and, and has departed due to a positive COVID test within her family. Uh, UConn is saying that this is being done out of an abundance of caution. Um, first of all, uh, we, we hope that Gino comes out of this uh, fully healthy. Um, luckily, he's had both, um, both shots for the vaccine, so both, both doses. So uh, I think we're hopeful that this will be a mild case for him. But um, again, this is, this is part of the, the risks associated with, with holding the games in this time. And, um, you know, it, uh, again, hope, hoping for the best there. Uh, and then with Shay Shay Ralph being gone, you know I think the initial story with with UConn was, hey look, there's a lot of experience on that bench. Chris Daly who's been there with him forever. Shay Ralph who's been there I think for like 18, 19 years. Um, Jamel Elliott who's who's been a head coach before. 
Um, but, but with Ralph going home, obviously that's, that's another big leader on the bench. So um, again, we, we hope for the best for, for everyone who's, who's tested positive uh, in terms of the team, they're down to two coaches uh, heading into this weekend. Uh, you know, what do you think that means for them? I think the biggest thing is like Gino can, if all goes well, return to the team after their second round game. Shay Ralph, we don't know if she's even going to return, but for the most part, UConn, it's the same program. Chris Daly obviously knows what she's doing. The players are used to Chris Daly. I feel like the biggest issue is just the lack of hands. Three coaches you can kind of deal with. You can split up the duties, do that sort of thing. Two coaches, you really can't do a whole lot in practice with only two coaches because then basically you can only have two groups doing something at once or a group has to do something on their own or just whatever they're doing. Like having watched practice, there's just not much I feel like you can do with only two coaches. So I feel like that's probably the biggest issue for them at the moment. And not that like it, it is good that they have Chris Daly obviously. And also Jamel Elliott, just because of her head coaching experience. And not only that, but she's very familiar with the program, having been a player here, having been an assistant coach here for a long time. It's not like they have someone like just using her as an example, not knocking her just Jasmine Lister, who maybe doesn't have a ton of experience with the program they have two people who are very familiar with how things run. So I think they'll be good in that regard, but it's just kind of tough with such a young team that I feel like the coaches need to do a lot that's hands-on. They need to really show them and tell them what to do and work, help them through practice. And I don't think Gino or Shay Ralph can do that through a computer. That's kind of propped up on the sideline through zoom. It's just not possible. You need to be there. So I think these next, what is it? Seven days now that they're not going to have Gino with them in the bubble. It's going to be tough for them just logistically. And I'm not sure what the rules are for this sort of thing. If they could maybe have one of their grad assistants help out with the coaching or a manager, just something like that. I I don't know if, (laughs) yes, call up Jen Rosati, see what she's doing. It's just a very tough situation and it's definitely not a great sign. Obviously like Shay Ralph hasn't tested positive. She's still testing negative. She may not even test positive, but it's not what you want having just gotten into the bubble yesterday. Yeah, definitely not ideal. Hopefully Shay Ralph and Gino are, are going to be okay and they'll be able to join the team at some point. I do think that as long as Chris Daly is, is there and even Jamel Elliott, who has coaching experience, head coaching experience, like you said, Dan, I still think UConn's in good hands, but it is a logistical nightmare when you get into just, they're going from four coaches to two. They're losing half of their coaching staff, but it's also going to be crazy because, and Dan, correct me if the numbers are a little off here, but I believe UConn has 117 NCAA tournament wins and they've all come with Gino Oriema. So this, assuming UConn beats high point, which I'm going to go out on a limb and say that they will, this will be the first win that the program has ever had in the NCAA tournament with Gino without Gino uh, and with Chris Daly at the helm. So she's 10 to know all time in her career. She's a good coach in her own, right? She could go any, you know, she could have any coaching job in the country if she wanted to, but it's just a crazy thing to think about. And it speaks to Gino's longevity, his coaching ability, and just everything that he built basically from the ground up with this program. So definitely 
a really interesting tidbit. I saw that in one of the press releases and was pretty shocked, even though you spend a few seconds to think about it. it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, I think we we feel all like we're in extremely good hands, even if it's just CD and, and Jamel Elliott. Um, totally agree that that they're pure shorthanded just in terms of running practice. Um, but there are certainly less experienced sets of assistant coaches out there, even at elite or, or highly ranked teams. Um, I think uh, the other thing is that this this weekend is, you know, high point. Uh, and then a second round game, it's been probably 100 years since UConn lost a second round game. Um, so I, I, again, I think, I think, I feel like there's a lot of reason to think that the team can get through this. Um, there's obviously the, the external factors of the spread of this disease and what happens to people that are, I think really important. Um, but f- feeling strong about, about CD and, and Jamel Elliott there, uh, at the helm, Wanted to ask, uh, you know, how do you feel about the the rest of the region? So, you know, UConn got a one seed. Uh, it's a pretty pretty interesting set of potential matchups down the road if they if they do end up winning their games. Yeah, I think the NCAA absolutely set this region up for all the storylines possible, and I commend them for it. I'm not saying that as a knock because I think it's it's good for the sport, it's good for the eyeballs on the games, it's just overall beneficial. So. If UConn gets to the Sweet 16, which I think they will, they've only lost one second round game ever. They lost their first two NCAA tournament games that they ever played in their 1989 and 1990, 91. They went to the final four and the 92, they lost in the second round to Vanderbilt. So if they get to the Sweet 16, they could play Iowa, who has fellow freshman sensation, Caitlin Clark. That would be just a f- awesome matchup because there's one correct part of the women's basketball Twitter sphere that says Paige Beckers is the best freshman in the country, which she is. And then there's another way more aggressive and vicious sect of the women's basketball Twitter sphere that says not only that Caitlin Clark is the greatest basketball player ever born and should probably be made emperor of the world, but Paige Beckers doesn't deserve to even be playing basketball. So There's also a potential Elite Eight matchup with Tennessee. The two teams haven't met in the NCAA tournament in a long, long time. So that would be really fun. And even if it's not Tennessee, there's a good chance that it's Baylor. Obviously, UConn was supposed to play Baylor earlier in the season. That one didn't happen. So just another potential really good matchup. So it feels like as if it's any of those top three seeds that they face in the Big East or the Elite Eight, sorry, it's going to be an interesting matchup. So yeah, it's an interesting region. It feels like a pretty tough region too. Baylor's a tough team, probably the worst matchup for UConn in the field among everyone. So yesterday we were recording Chasing Perfection and Megan Gower, our women's basketball writer and co-host on Chasing Perfection thinks that the, if UConn wins in wins against Baylor and gets to the final four, they're going to win the national championship. So who am I to contradict Megan? She's a lot smarter than I am. So I go with that too. If they beat Baylor, they're going to win it all. And just my overall prediction is that they're going to win it all. Anyways, I really like how this team has developed as long as they can stay in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, Dan, I I think UConn is definitely the favorite. I know after some confusion, they were not the number one overall seed that went to Stanford, but I still think 
with the way that UConn is playing, with the way that Paige Beckers is playing, it's hard to go against uh, this Huskies team. I, I think they're really talented. I'm excited to see that Iowa matchup potentially uh, in the second weekend. And uh, I kind of missed the Caitlin Clark, Paige Beckers beef, but uh, very excited to defend Paige Beckers online. Uh, after that, if it happens, so should be exciting to see. I I think it's definitely going to be interesting, especially with Gino being out and possibly rejoining the team in a later date. Obviously, this has never happened before for any sort of major tournament where they're you know the coach, the head coach is missing possibly an extended amount of time. Uh, let alone you know in the women's NCAA tournament where you know things can change so quickly. So. Uh, excited to watch. It's going to be fun to flip between channels and, you know, different days with the men and the women in the tournament. It feels like, you know, the early 2000s where this was a regular occurrence. So definitely excited. I do think UConn is going to win it all as well, but I'm looking forward to a matchup against Stanford or possibly a rematch against Tennessee in their own, in their own bracket. I don't think UConn wins it all. I think they'll, I think they'll make the final four, but um I don't know. I just think there's there's uh, there's some other competition out there. I I was confused about the the one overall seed though. Did did we get any more exact details on like why that was the case? I mean, UConn was ranked number one to that point. So Dan, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe either the week of the selection show or maybe the week before, Stanford jumped UConn in the net rankings. Uh, and so the NCAA used that as the basis to give the Cardinal the number one overall seed instead of UConn on the ESPN selection show, the person announcing the seeds said that NC state was the number one overall seed. But from what we understand now, I believe the Wolfpack were the fourth, the final number one seed. And it, they were going last to first of number one seeds and just, everyone got jumbled up and it was just board salad after that. And everyone was confused. The broadcast got messed up and they had to release a statement kind of clearing, clarifying everything the following day or, or a few hours after. Right, Dan. Yeah. Well, the worst part I think is that they didn't go fourth to first, they went fourth, third, and then second, and then they finished with UConn, which that just honestly feels like they did it so that UConn fans, the largest fan base that's going to be tuning into this has to watch until the end. But yeah, it's one thing if you're going to do a weird bracket reveal, at least say beforehand, this is the number one overall seed, or this is how we're going to do it or anything like that. But they literally just went straight into it, make a mistake on the opening reveal where they say that NC state is the number one overall seed, which made no sense to anyone who's followed women's basketball even a little bit this year. So yeah, it was a giant mess. I don't understand how it happened considering ESPN does this every single year, but yeah, Stanford's the number one overall seed. It was just pretty much that the PAC 12 is better than the big East. It was nothing that UConn did because UConn beat the crap out of every single team they played from that last bracket reveal until the selection show and Stanford just played better teams. So I think that's really what it came down to. Shout out Shabazz Napier, shout out Phil Nolan. That's going to do it for us. Thank you all for listening.
five to seven minutes a game. Sometimes I don't feel it's worth playing him at all because he's still coming back from his injury. This is a free year. We would have redshirted him in a normal year and he's going to, you know, come back better than ever next year, or he's not a part of the program. Like he's not a part of our plans anymore. We, we don't need him on this team. Like he's never going to say that, but I just, the, the Richie Springs, when Richie Springs got in before a cook, a cook that just like sent me over the edge. Like I just was, I was livid because it's like, he's not healthy. If he's healthy, he would be playing. And he definitely would have played against Creighton. Like he's one of the best defensive players in the country. I don't know. Sorry. I'll, I'll be, I'm fired up. Or, or like, it's just, yeah. Okay. He, he's not at full like strength. He, he doesn't have his quickness or his jumping ability back. And we'd rather not put him out there until he has that back. Like, that's fine. Like say that he's not healthy. That's fine. Say that. Don't say he's 100% healthy. Never play him and then get angry when people don't answer your question or don't yeah. ask you why he's not playing. Like you, you can't have everything in that scenario. Like meanwhile, Bob Diaco is just like Bob Diaco would say anything. Bob Diaco would tell us like, yeah. So he would break down the Achilles tendon. He'd tell us, you know, what part the, uh, the surgeon sewed up and, and what the issue, what the issues are exactly with the cook. The cook. Achilles catches to your foot. <laughs> fasciitis. Um, and there'd be a description about the guy Achilles too. That'd be like a 30 minute lead into it. <laughs> and also I'm still holding on to hope that maybe there's a Willis Reed type of situation and he comes in, you know, like maybe, maybe they beat Maryland and then he comes in for Bama and we're just like, yes. And he just, yeah, I mean, and they just go like, crazy. Imagine him and Whaley at the four and the five, like no, it's so forget it. Yeah, yeah, or all three of them. Screw it. Put a cook at the three. <laughs> could happen next year. Whaley could stay for another year. I mean, it's not the worst idea for him. Over making yeah. in uh in like Spain or something, you know. I love Whaley. I I <laughs> hope he comes back. Yeah, I, that's the thing is I feel like he could just he could like kick around in the G League for like a month and then just get the bag from some random high level European team and just be a millionaire for yeah. for 10 years extremely in the right to do so right yeah yeah no it, I it, mean, it's hard to say they should come back when he can definitely make a lot of money like i don't know what tyler polly's future is looking like you know like i'd like to have him back i'd like to have carlton back i'd take any of those guys there's no scholarships anymore nothing matters it's all just make believe so might as well just keep bringing guys back till we can't i said the same thing about jalen and i feel like the same thing applies to they're just like perfect players for Europe, like absolutely perfect, and are gonna have twenty-year careers in Europe and make a ton of money there, but never sniffed the NBA, which is fine. That's like I actually think Whaley might get an NBA look. I I think he's just so good defensively. I that's a hot take. It, it's it's a really hot take, but I just think I think someone will roll the dice and he'll play like four minutes a game, late late season call up for some bad team. I think it's possible for him just based on like the fact that he's had such a great trajectory. Yeah. He won't have a career though. I don't think, but you know, he could, he could mess around in the G league. He'd have to really get much better as a shooter and develop just a little bit of range. And if yeah. he, that, he really, he totally could, you know, if I think it's a confidence thing with him though, too. I mean, he, he's obviously super selective with the threes, but he's shooting like he was shooting like 40% from three, but he, you know, it's four for 10 or eight for 20 this year. Like, yeah, I'd rather have him shoot more honestly, or figure it out, but I don't know. 